So, Patty, really enjoyed having Jeff Shea on today from Under.io. Uh, he's always just a really insightful kind of, uh, not a futurist, but kind of he always sees what's coming around the corner. Well, yeah, he's oh, interesting. He, and, and he's definitely more into the, the, you know, the undergirding technologies and processes that keep this business really going. Yeah. I've always I've always appreciated our discussions with him because I learned something every day. And and this time I learned a little bit about underwriting that I didn't know before. So yeah, absolutely. that was very helpful. If you're looking to streamline that, you're going to enjoy that conversation. And then um, I talk about a merchant, uh, a restaurant owner that I talked to today. I was actually out in the field today and had a meeting with a restaurant owner selling them a point of sale system. Uh, you know, find out if I close the deal tomorrow, but, uh, or I guess today is Friday. So I guess Monday, uh, uh-huh. but send a proposal over, but I think we'll get that deal. But, uh, you know, I talked about dual pricing right. and their view of that as somebody that owns two different restaurant locations. So and that's what I talked about. Kind of going at pricing from two different ways. Yes. Yes, yes. exactly. Yep. And then, uh, Patty, tell us about the insiders. Uh, talking about, you know, the feds coming down on big tech and in particular, um, lack of competition in the mobile payments, um, arena yeah so, so we talk uh, about apple pay and, and even broadly too we talk about some of these trends and how they affect the isos mm-hmm. and their share of the pie so uh jeff shea as well as under.io they're not paid sponsors not they don't do advertising no consulting never done anything like that with them this is just a great guy and somebody in the industry we respect so with that in mind let's dive into this interview welcome to the merchant sales podcast Hey, everybody. Patty and I are here today with Jeff Shea, who's the CEO at Under.io. How are you doing today, Jeff? Doing great. Thanks for having me on. Of course. Yeah. So uh, we had you on a little while back and uh, you were talking about onboarding merchant accounts and some of the things you're doing at Under.io. But for those that maybe missed that episode, can you give us a little bit of your background? How did you get into this crazy business and you know what led you to uh, founding Under.io? Yeah, thank you for that. So I've been in payments now, I think about 12 years. Um, cool. It's funny, when I got started, I was Middle-aged. Uh, <laughs> I was not from the industry, but I'm starting to get to that mature state. So right, that's right. Um, came into payments, kind of fell in love with it. Um, we eventually were a wholesale ISO and a payment facilitator. Um, and we were at the really early days of kind of this transition of what I consider like the legacy payments to the more modern payments that we're seeing today. Um, And I think, you know, when we were in the space, we really saw this transition and these business model changes are driving merchants to expect a a digital experience today. Um, We found it was really expensive for us to start to upgrade, you know, our technology uh, or vendor technology and, you know, saw more of these rise in fintechs like Stripe and Square and, and Adyen and and all of that stuff. Um, so, you know, that uh, after leaving the payment side of the books, that really kind of forced us to to want to do something about this um, and really kind of give back to the space that we came from. So I developed under, you know, we help financial services companies to onboard more customers uh, across more channels by leveraging our no-code software platform. And it really does a couple of things. It allows our customers to quickly and inexpensively implement a new front end um, without engineers, without having to upgrade old technology. Um, they can now provide digital first solutions to their customers and they can compete with the rise of technology in the space. Awesome. Yeah, I love it. So you know, I thought it would be great is as we, as we dive into this, uh, Jeff, maybe you can give us some insights here. When we talk about the current state of underwriting, which we're talking about underwriting and AI today, 
when we think about kind of legacy underwriting, I guess we'll call it, but it's it's really not legacy yet. It's kind of what everybody still does. It should be legacy. But, you know, underwriting today from the ISO all the way up to, you know, the acquiring banks and everything, how do you see the current system and what are the challenges that that are currently facing the industry when it comes to like onboarding merchants? So underwriting is always top of mind in every industry in financial services, right? And it feels like fraud is always on the rise. Uh, so it's only a more important question every year that goes by. I think the other um, parallel is that the sophistication of fraud is always on the rise, mm, yeah. uh, not just mm -hmm. the quantity of fraud. And in my experience, underwriting has always been additive. Uh, so what I mean by that is someone creates an underwriting policy based on analysis of you know, the, the work that they're going into, right? And then something new happens. There's a new way that people are um, creating losses. Uh, there's a new fraud of some sort that comes across. So then there's, you know, there's a component that's put in place to solve for this one new thing that's added on top of the underwriting policy. You know, and then six months later, a year later, something else happens. There's a new way that people are starting to be attacked or starting to lose money. So then there's something else added. And, and really over the last 10 or 20 years, it just feels like this additive process of like a foundational policy with we'll cover this and we'll cover this. And, you know, what that does is it just creates more um, time and money into the process. There's more people involved. There's more systems that they're checking. It may take longer. There's probably more requirements on the merchant, which creates a worse user experience. And like, to me, that's the enigma around underwriting that's constantly gotten worse. And we, until recently, haven't really seen ways of improving that process other than just layering one more thing on top. And so, you know, with that in mind, I mean, big picture, how do you see AI, you know, solving these problems? If you can kind of explain to our audience a little bit more of the practical implications of, of how AI can be leveraged in, in that way. Yeah. So maybe to start, like, how does AI work, right? Because this is yeah. new and I, I don't think everyone really has a full grasp of how this works yet, except yeah. maybe chat GPT, right. right? So AI basically combines large data sets with algorithms, Right. And then it manipulates the algorithms um, by learning the behavior patterns that are within this data. Right. And that's that's ultimately like the foundation of, of how you can think of it. And it's interesting. McKinsey reported that um, manual underwriting in insurance is going to be obsolete by 2030. Uh, which is not that far away. That's seven yeah. years from now. And I think it's a lot of this, you know, transition that we've started to see. So, you know, if we think of like AI with risk and underwriting, where I think there's an opportunity here is that processors and wholesale ISOs and payment facilitators, et cetera, they have an enormous amount of data. And if you look at the cohort of losses, as an example, you take like, here's all the merchants that I or we or this like collaborative group have lost money on for different reasons, right? Mm -hmm. With AI, what you can do is you can organize all that data um, specifically within this, this cohort. You could dump it into um, an algorithm and start mm -hmm. to learn behaviors and ideally start to like identify in advance, like what, what account is either going to create a loss or what are the parameters that would take an account that's not going to create a loss and eventually transition it into an account that now at this point, there's a higher risk of loss. 
So it's, it's really leveraging that data set, which exists, and then just updating the algorithms to help create a model that is, is a different way of approaching it from what I talked about before, which is like, here's one more plug and one more plug that you just kind of stack on top of that. Right, right, right. So, so what is underdoing um, to, to leverage this, you know, and, and provide new solutions? Yeah, I mean, or, so when it comes to improve solutions, I guess it's both, right? Yeah, when it comes to AI, there's really two different ways that we look at it, right? So we're interested in um, the learned language models to transform our front-end experience, right? And I think that's the other transition that we're already seeing and going to see more and more, right? So, um, you know, if you think of what we do, right? So with under... Our software allows users to come in and create digital applications. So if you want to have mm -hmm. an apply now button on your website, or you want to issue credit cards, or you want to offer payment accounts or loans, you can very easily create digital forms. Um, you then can connect that to, you know, the related processor application or the compliance documents that you have, and you can automate your identity management with that too, right? So when we think of using AI in our front end, it's kind of transitioning away from the like log into a portal, do these steps, click these buttons, build these things, and instead come in and say, hey, I'm a, a payments company, I'd like to add and apply now button to issue credit cards on my website, right? And they type that in and then that goes through our system and actually does the mechanics of creating that process. So that's a little bit of how I just think front ends in general are changing uh -huh. with SaaS. And we've sure. seen that today with ChatGPT. I think people are using this a lot in content. You know, a lot of companies are writing their blogs through these um, mm -hmm. solutions instead of the process of that. Um, and then the the other area is what we've been talking about with it, which is underwriting and risk, right? So what we do today is really um, kind of try to leverage data, right? So uh, specifically, if we think of just like our KYC workflow, you know, most companies just run one check. They'll do a LexisNexis check or something mm -hmm. like that. And they'll get a response back and then make a decision. You know, we try to leverage as much as we can. So we're running a five point check on our KYC, including multi-factor authentication, using services like Akata, Iovation, Idology, ID Analytics, LexisNexis, Twilio. And we're taking the data from all these different services, running them through an algorithm, and then also helping to come back with predictable responses like this account mm -hmm. should be approved this should be declined this should be reviewed and then here's all the data uh on why that should happen supporting it right and and really why right i think like the why for me with ai is is a couple of really basic things one computers can just handle more data right so we've now added four five six different checks to an underwriter they've got to look at multiple reports try to combine the data together uh, it might make it more overwhelming or more expensive to kind of go in that pattern, but a computer can obviously take in more data, make more sophisticated um, decisions. Mm -hmm. um, and then it also can remove biases. And there's, there's an interesting study um, about AI in um, uh, the judicial uh, uh, courts on how it could potentially create better sentence guidelines for courts. And it's for these same two reasons, right? It can take more data and it can move the bias that a judge may put on this. Like how polite was the person when they were up for sentencing? What are they wearing? Or did you know this person? You know, this feeling of I know better. And I think that that's so rampant in underwriting. You know, an underwriter may have 
come from a certain industry and therefore have a, already a bias for an account that they're approving. Or maybe the business they're in just lost money um, from a certain space. So they're now so they're particularly avoiding, avoiding that. Right. Or um, maybe they you know, don't like the way that the business is structured. But there are all these like personal biases that mm. may not actually influence in a positive way the outcome. So to me, it's like using AI to use more data to handle it mathematically and then to make a logical decision instead of always having it be a human-based decision. Right, right, right. Hmm. So what about if we zoom out and look at merchant onboarding in general? You know, what should ISOs um, be doing, you know, in order to be more competitive with these big pay facts like Stripe and, and Adyen and Square? I mean... Seems to me that this is this is a logical way that they can. Yeah, so I would almost go back to the basics. I mean, I think step one is to get online. You know, that's that's almost a web two point well, that's like yeah, a... yeah, right. That's like <laughs> English one oh one. You have to know how to write the but, words, but, but, but it's a but one it's one would interesting think because... they already do. Yeah, but a lot of them, I mean, you know, it's amazing, um, Jeff, when I look at the web presence of a lot of the smaller ISOs today. And I mean, it basically is a, they might have a one page Wix site or something, but I mean, mm -hmm. there's no interaction, there's no sign up, there's no anything like that, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's step one, get online, okay. get a website, you can get that very inexpensively now, um, find right. a way that you can communicate and talk with your customers online instead of having to just like meet them in person or do something over the phone. Um, you know, the other thing is I would, I would really think about empowering your distribution channel, right? So still what, one of the strengths of the ISO market is the relationship that they have with their customers. Um, mm -hmm. that's been a strength. And I think one of the reasons that it's still thriving today, kind of against odds, uh, from what we've been hearing over, over the last few years, but them and their distribution channels have relationships with their customers, but right. they're often the least technically capable Right. So if you have ways that you can give tools to your distribution, your agents, your ISVs, your downline channels to help them create a better experience when they're onboarding their customers, that's going to be paramount. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that goes hand in hand with with getting online. Um, and then the, the last piece we've seen a lot is to think about verticalization. Uh, it feels like those that are really the best at something can succeed more than being a generalist. And it's, yeah. it's difficult to be a generalist now in the payment space. Mm -hmm. uh, yet we've seen a lot of ISOs really do amazing things as they start to become the best at something. Yeah. And it's, and it's so interesting to me, right? Because it's like, Jeff, you can, if you go back, say when you got in the industry 12 years ago, which is about the same time I did, right? You know, I was a specialist at payment processing, which meant I knew how to read a credit card processing statement and I knew how to set up a Nareet terminal, right? And that made me an expert because, you know, so I could sell any business I wanted, you know, pretty much in my, in rural Pennsylvania here, you know, that was that that's, that's what payment processing meant 12 years ago, right. you know, but then I think the issue is today it means something very different. It means point of sale. It means integrated payments. It means, you know, specialized underwriting potentially. It means all these other things. And so there's this additional complexity to where now you can't claim, you know, to say I'm a payments expert. I don't even know what that means anymore. Like right? that's, you know, I don't know that that's like saying we're a restaurant. I know how to pay my bills. <laughs> right. It's yeah. Okay, right. Sure, payments. Sure. Yeah. If, if a business owner came to me and I said, what kind of business do you guys have? And they said, well, I, I own a restaurant. 
I'd say, well, what like a Mexican restaurant? You mean a quick serve, a cafe, a fine dining establishment? You have a food truck? Like, what do you mean? You know, like right. I think in the same way, it's like you can't say, well, I sell payment processing. Well, what do you mean? You you sell B two B and you do optimization. You sell card dot present merchants on on e commerce solutions. Like what? You know what I mean? So I don't know, Jeff. What are your thoughts on that? Is it do you see the verticalization, the complexity? How is that feeding into these trends? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's it's a key part of finding a way to create a better experience for your customer. Because at the end of the day, um, the way that most businesses succeed is that they give a valuable products to their customer. And the way that they beat their competitors is that they have something that's more in need that better solves their problems. Mm -hmm. So if you think of payments in this legacy fashion as somewhat of a utility, we can give everyone payments just like everyone can give everyone payments. Uh, you don't have a way of really standing out. Uh, and there's some amazing things out there today. I mean, the products that Stripe has built and Square and just so many of the POSs that you've talked about, et cetera, are bringing real value. You know, you go to a, you know, a, a fast casual restaurant or a bike shop or somewhere, and they're using a tablet with a software that actually solves their business. It just mm -hmm. happens to come with payments instead right. of taking payments because they have to take payments. So there's a lot of different ways to verticalize. It doesn't have to be technology. It could be within a certain cohort, really understanding like those pain points and then figuring out how your solution can just create a better business experience for them. And I feel like that, you know, that's something that any ISO today can do and should do and will set them ahead. Hmm. You know, what are you seeing with your connections right now? Are you seeing ISOs making this transition you know, in other words, are you seeing those ISOs that like they were the generalists and they have maybe even the, the sales team that's going out and they're shifting gears and they're becoming those vertical specialists or solution specialists? You know, I know we're kind of we're way off course here and just zooming out, but I'm just curious, like, what do you have any thoughts from your connections, what you're seeing in your own experience of, you know, that can seem very daunting to make that shift any tips or thoughts on how to actually make that begin to make that shift? What are the steps that they need to take? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I have been impressed. There's been a handful of companies that have done this quite well. Right. And if you, uh, you know, if you're a reader and you follow some of their blogs or LinkedIn posts, you'll even see it as something that they talk about a lot. Um, I've seen a lot of context from ISOs talking about how the evolution of their sales process, right? From the early days, lots of agents right. to the middle days, everybody had a call center. To the new days, they've got a much more customized, higher level sales team, probably a much smaller sales team. And this right. is this is all related to like what the business is doing. So I think yeah. some companies have done a really great job with this. This is what yeah. we tried to do. We transitioned from being a generalist into a payment facilitation platform. We focused on vertically integrated software and marketplaces back in 2015. And um, that was our way of doing it. Um, and I, I have seen that across the trends. You know, another way to do that for a smaller group is to just find the right group to partner with. So this might be yeah. switching your general agent agreement from, you know, a key processor over to one of the, the larger group that is really starting to do that. And that, that way, you know, without the time or resources, you can make that transition. Um, but again, at the end of the day, like the steps to do that, if that's the process that you go, I think is really easy. It's like figure out a business that has some real pain and figure out how you can make that pain less than it is today, right? And focus all of your, you know, engineering and your acumen and the way that you approach the market and doing that. And it, and ideally, it's not 
a payments pain, right? You're solving a pain within the core business that the business right. cares about more. And then you're obviously leveraging financial services to do that. I love it. Hey, so before we uh, finish up today, I wanted, I thought it'd be cool to kind of dig in just a little bit more on under.io um, if you don't mind, because I, I really want to make sure I, I love what you're doing, Jeff. And I want to make sure our audience like truly, truly understands, you know, what this means. So let's go for like an ISO. So there, I, I've got it. Let's say I've got an ISO. I've got, you know, you know, we're doing 50 mids a month and we're currently with, you know, let's say TSIS, right. It's a real common platform. So why and how would I partner with under.io? Sure. So um, first of all, just to be clear, under is not a processor. Um, we don't do payments. Uh, we're a software company. Uh, we're agnostic. So it doesn't matter who you work with, what processor, what super ISO, what agents, what payment facilitator, or even if you're not in payments, we work with people that issue credit cards, loans, uh, insurance, things like that. So uh, you would first kind of take a step of like, are you... Um, are you interested in creating a better way of um, onboarding customers in my business? Are you interested in modernizing your website? Are you interested in coming up with digital solutions that you can offer? And that's like the first step of, of working with us. Um, the types of things that we do, as I mentioned, is our, our platform is no code, meaning you don't need an engineer to use it. You could think of it similar to like the level of expertise you would need to use HubSpot or Salesforce or something of that nature. Um, users come into our platform. The first step is they're probably going to create their first digital form. You know, this might be a pre-application that you put on your website. This might just be a contact us page. Go to my website, enter some information, an easy way to start collecting data. It's mobile optimized. It can be incredibly sophisticated or it can be really simple. Um, from there, our customers will often then uh, start to create experiences and workflows. So one might be, I want to create an automated application for my thesis application. So they can use our platform to start to connect those missing pieces, add the PDF, add electronic signatures. These are the supporting documents we need. Let's clean up the questions that we ask. And our product allows them to kind of connect that. And most of our customers have lots of workflows. They might have a pre-application, a contact us page, a certain ISV form for one of their ISVs. They'll have a TSIS app, maybe a high-risk app. And the, you know, the, the series goes on. They may also leverage us to very quickly and easily start to offer merchant cash advance or issue credit cards because it's all within the same ecosystem. Um, and then for the groups we work with that bear liability, um, they'll often leverage our identity suite. So we will help them to, to automate their KYCs, KYBs, credit checks, bank verifications, and pull all that data into the process so that they can either use it as a pre-qualification or even the early stages as they're thinking about underwriting um, with what they do. Love it. Great. Well, thanks for sharing that. Um, Jeff, I always love having you on. I think you're somebody who's kind of keeping an eye on the, on the cutting edge trends and with your payments background, it brings a lot of uh, really cool uh, kind of insight and context to it. So uh, for those that are in our audience, they love what you're talking about. They want to learn more about working with under.io to handle the underwriting and build the forms out and all of that. Where would you send them to learn more? Yeah, two places. Our website, under.io, U-N-D-E-R.io. And we're pretty active on LinkedIn. So uh, anyone wants to you know, take a look, we've got a lot of good information on there as well. Uh, and same to you, James. Always a pleasure to be on the show. Uh, appreciate everything that you guys are doing out there. Awesome. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us today. Hope you have a great day. So Patty took a couple people from my team recently to a really cool resort and we were doing some planning and things. And guess what we used all day at the restaurants and at the resort? 
your Nativia debit card? You got it. So we yeah. use our Nativia debit card. We got our cash back. But here's what's really cool. I am actually the agent of my own account, <laughs> right? That's fun. That's so fun. I'm, I'm the uh -huh. agent that sold the account. And so not only am I going to get cash back on this, but guess what? I'm going to get from my own account. Cash for your, yes. Yeah, I'm getting my residual income. So um, if you're not familiar with how banking services produce residual income, just like merchant services. Just like it, yes. You need to learn more about our sponsor. Our sponsor today is, of course, Nativia Banking. Uh, you can learn more about them by going to nativia.com slash banking. But here's the key you got to understand. When you're on the, you know, acquiring side, like like all of us are, right? And we're selling right. payment processing. We look at interchange as an expense. Right. Which it is. It's taken away from our residuals. But guess what? That interchange is somebody's income. Guess who's making income on that interchange? It's the bank. So it's issuing the card. Issuing the card. Why don't you become the bank? right? And work with Nativia Banking to offer banking services to your business clients. So they would be using their Nativia business debit card, just like I was. Right. They would be getting cash back rewards. You would be making residual income. So again, head over to nativia.com slash banking and check it out. This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by ccsalespro.com, the leader in merchant sales training and technology. If you're an individual merchant sales professional, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash training to get a free 14-day trial of our all-access pass. If you manage a team of merchant sales professionals, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash ISO to learn how we can help you grow. And now, here is Questions from the Field with James Shepard. So for those of you that are watching, you'll notice that at least myself, I don't remember with Patty, but I'm wearing the same thing I wore for the last episode. And, and the reason is because we've recorded them in the same day. So we do that and sometimes. And I actually, I, I didn't change between All because right. there wasn't enough time. Really. There you go. Well, what's interesting is today while recording these episodes, right before we recorded Patty, I was over at a local restaurant selling them a point of sale system. Um, ah. So not something that I do very often, uh, but I'm working on a, a, a little video uh, that I'm going to put out on, on selling a, a restaurant on point of sale. So I had this interesting conversation and I just had to share it because I thought it was so cool and, and I thought it was so relevant to our audience. So I'm talking to this, this company, it's a restaurant, uh, a fairly large restaurant, and um, they have uh, like an event center and they have a bar and then they have the restaurant. So they have these uh -huh. kind of three different venues. Right. And their point of sale system is very old. It's like nine years old. I won't say who it's with to, you know, not, not to be, uh, well, don't who say negative. nine years ago. Huh? All right. Um, we can remember that far back. Yeah. So, um, anyway though, but here's what's interesting about it. They actually have another, uh, they own another restaurant in the local area that I frequent often as well. And at that one, they already had upgraded their system again to an, a provider that's much more modern. I won't say who. Um, and I was talking today to the dad and son. So they run these businesses uh -huh. kind of together. The son's kind of the CEO. The dad's like CEO emeritus, I guess is the best way to put it. And, um, you know, they, we were talking about dual pricing. Okay. And it was such an interesting conversation. Um, so when I was talking to the son and the dad kind of chimes in, and so we're just talking about it. And I'm like, well, what do you think about that? Because the, the system I was going to install, obviously I'm, you know, me, so I'm pitching dual pricing. And they're like, yeah, uh, they said, we, you know, we already did that at our other location with the other provider. They were able to eliminate the processing fees. And he said that saved us an average of $8,000 a month. Wow. Like that is huge. Wow. 
And I said, oh, that's that's awesome. I said, are you have you seen any change? And he said, you know, actually, he said we've had a slight uptick in the number of people that pay with cash. Right. But he said the overall revenue has grown significantly even since we implemented the program. And so when I pitched him on this other location and said, hey, let's well, let's do do that right here. And he said, well, here we only spend about two thousand dollars a month on fees. And, you know, I said, okay, so do you want to save $24,000 a year? And he's like, you betcha I do, you know? So, right. um, but just having this conversation, it was so interesting to me. And, and, and even the, you know, as the son kind of chimed in and was talking about how he said, you know, yeah, I feel like this, this location here is one of the only holdouts in the area where we're not passing the cost of processing, you know, to our customers. Uh, and it was just such an interesting conversation. And it just reminded me again of how ingrained this concept is in certain markets like mine. Um, mm-hmm because of people like me and others, right? Right, Um, right, right. Where, you know, everybody in this area has just been sold on this idea already. Customers are super familiar with it. And there is no way you're going to get these business owners to go back on that. And so I think it's going to be very interesting for Visa to, um, you know, continue this push for transparency and all that. But I, I, I do, I just foresee that this is a market trend Right. That is really ingrained in certain areas. Now, at the same time, I'm consulting with an ISO that's out in uh, the San Jose, California area. Mm-hmm. And that's a market where it just almost doesn't even exist out there hardly. You know, very well, here where I am, it does not it does not exist. I yeah. mean, it's amazing. I've thought about going out and just pitching it for the heck of it. But it's like, yeah, nobody nobody's does doing it. it. Yeah, it's, I, and it's so strange, the areas like that. And then you have areas like mine where it's just kind of everybody does this. Um, right. And even in in very you know, varying degrees of compliance, like I talked about in the last one about the pizza shop that had, right? Uh, you know, or no, you know, did I, did I say that? I don't think I said that on the last episode. That actual that sign that I saw. I think I was telling you about that. Yeah, that's right. You were telling me. Yeah. You didn't tell. You should tell our audience about that. That was like blew me away. But. Yeah. So so a few days ago, I was at a local pizzeria that I actually tried to sell like probably I don't know ten years ago, and I wasn't successful with that one. Yeah. My um, side is there's a pizza place in Altoona that James hasn't sold. But. Yeah, I know, right? That's that's news right there. But at any rate. Um, yeah, so the sign on the window was the most non-compliant sign I've ever seen. The sign on the window said a convenience fee of 4% is added to all credit and debit card transactions. This is in addition to the regular price. <laughs> I was like, wow, man, you literally hit every possible wrong note you could hit. I mean, it's like a convenience fee. No, it's not a convenience fee. That's a different thing. It's added to credit and debit. You can't add it to debit. It's 4%. Well, the cap is 3% if you're going to do right. a surcharge. And it said that it's in addition to the regular price. So you just right. wipe that. It's like possible. so off the wall. It's right? definitely not cash discounting or anything else. I mean, it's not even a non-cash adjustment. It's just a fee. It's a surcharge. So, you know, in varying degrees, but it's like that kind of just goes to show like that sign in our area probably hasn't hurt that business at all because no, because everybody's doing it. Everybody's right? so used to this idea anyway that they just don't care. Um, yeah. And so now if they get a Visa mystery shopper in there, they're going to have an interesting time right. of it. But um, yeah, so I just, the thing I really wanted to report on today was this. Dual pricing, differential pricing, this is a concept that is here to stay in certain markets. And as a result of that, I think it's going to be very difficult to ever kind of reverse this trend. I think it's just something that's going to evolve over time. But I don't think we're, you know, the the, the guys I talked to today, you know, in order to get them to start paying credit card processing fees again, mm-hmm. I mean, Visa is going to have to you know, charge them 20 grand or something. And even then they're going to be like, you know, taking them to court. I mean, there's a lot of merchants out there right now. I've been saying this all along. This is, you know, if they try to press this, they're just asking to be taken to court. Yep. So that's my thought. We'll see how it plays out. 
This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by The Green Sheet. For nearly 40 years, The Green Sheet has been the go-to source for news, analysis, and educational tools that empower and connect payments professionals. If you're not reading The Green Sheet already, check it out on the web today at www.greensheet.com. So the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, we love talking about these guys. Um, they it's think a, it's that a fun bunch tech, over there, you know. I'm sorry? I said it's, a, it's a fun bunch over there. Oh, they're I mean. fun, you know. I mean, especially even <laughs> saying their name is like. It's like, could they really not have come up with a better name than that? But Yeah, anyway. could they not? Yeah. yeah but that's Washington for you. Yeah. Well, anyway, right. the, the, the Federal Consumer Watchdog, as I like to call it, uh, thinks big tech has gotten, has uh, too much sway in the mobile payments market. And they do. I yeah. mean, you know. yeah. Yeah, no, um, no secret there. Yeah, yeah. So we're talking about so CF, Apple Pay and Google Wallet. I mean, that pretty much controls pretty much the mobile payments. I mean, pretty much, you know, so. Right. And, you know, CFPB uh, Director Rohit Chopra um, spoke to this at the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia's annual FinTech conference, which was uh, in early September. Okay. It, it happened to coincide, the speech, coincide with the Bureau's release of findings from its review of information collected. Remember back in 2021, asked all the high-tech companies to provide information on their uh, payment activities and other things mm. in the financial sector. Right, right. Um, so um, he, uh, it's in his speech, he, as you just said, you know, the he spoke of the outsized influence of Apple and Google that they exert over contactless payments. You know, consumer usage of tap to go options in their smartphones has grown exponentially, really, in recent right. years, largely right. due to um, COVID. Uh, it apparently, from the data that I collected, about $300 billion ran across Apple Pay, Samsung Pay, and Google Pay last year. Okay, $300 billion. I mean, what's, what's, the, uh, what's the total market? You know, like, is that. Well, for mobile, I don't know, but I mean, you know, total market for credit cards is like three trillion. Well, that's what I was gonna say. I was like, yeah. okay, that's so. Yeah, but I, know, I guess you... I mean three hundred billion though, and that is that U.S. only. Yes. yes okay. That's oh, US. that's so. That's a lot. I mean, yeah, three hundred billion. Yeah. That's a ton because, yeah. When you think about, you know, like what percentage of total GDP is coming across with cards, right. you know, with mobile with mobile payments, it can be much more than that. Yeah. 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 So Visa has data that says one in three Americans are now using tap to pay. I have to admit, I get like irritated if I had to put, if I have to dip my card anymore. Yep. That's a 700% increase over 2020. Hmm. Um, wow. And MasterCard estimates that contactless payments account for over 60% of its network activity globally. So this, these are just some some data points to show you how big mobile is, if we hadn't thought so already, and yeah. why the government's a little concerned. Yeah. Um. You know, it takes issues with rules that restrict access to competing mobile wallets. You know, in other words, you can't load an Android wallet onto an Apple phone. Um, right. You know, there's not a Android. Google doesn't have a similar uh, prohibition right now, but you know, as Chopra put it, that doesn't mean they can't do it sometime in the future. Right. So he says our restrictions on the use of tap to pay reduce consumer choice and inhibit progress towards a more robust open banking system. 
And of course, we know about open banking, which makes it possible for consumers to share their information among mm -hmm. providers. Yep. Um, and it said that CFPB said in a statement that it is evaluating the existing retail payments landscape to understand how regulatory changes within that arena might help or hinder the transition to open banking. Mm. Wow. So, you know, they're definitely, I mean, they've been, you know, during the last administration, they were pretty much pushed to the side, but they're clearly um, been been amping up in this administration. Mm -hmm. And frankly, I mean, if they're going to go after big tech, it could be worse. Yeah. I mean, one thing I will say that I, it's maybe a little bit off, but just kind of where my mind always goes with this stuff is, you know, there's this common theme in my mind of the risk that we have of, you know, wallet share. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I just, I really feel like, you know, it's so funny we're having this conversation because right before we recorded this, I had a meeting with uh, the CEO of CC Storage, so one of the companies that I own that sure. is uh, like an ISV. And he was talking about how urgent it is for them to develop. Like right now, when somebody signs up to rent a storage unit with one of our clients that's using our software, um, they can't pay with Apple Pay on their phone. You know, they, oh, really? they, they have to actually like type in their credit card number, you know, mm -hmm. and they can do the picture, you know, to take the picture of it and then, it, you know. But, um, you know, and it was funny because we were both talking about it and he's like, how do you feel about, you know, and I said, if I go to a website and they want me to key my number and I don't have Apple pay, I'm out. I'm out and he's like, and he's thing. like, I'm the same way, you know? And so it's, just, it's crazy that we've gotten to this point where it's like, as an ISV, you know, as, as more of a, you know, uh, that, that side of the market. Right. I mean, we're like, well, are we, you know, we got to reach out to Tilled, which is our you know, processor there. And we got to find out how do we leverage the gateway, you know, uh, API to get Apple pay on, you know, like that's crucial. And so, yes. yeah, you know, it's it, the, the mobile payment stuff is, is crucial because, you know, if you're out there building a portfolio, the question isn't just how many merchants am I losing? What's my attrition of merchants? The question is, are your merchants using, you know, shop.com or one of these other solutions to sell their stuff online? Are they using DoorDash for delivery? Are they using mm -hmm. Uber Eats? Are they using Groupon? And all of a sudden it's like, well, this merchant does, you know, it's like they're doing a hundred thousand a month in revenue and they're processing 40,000 in card. Right. And that's where you start to, and I feel like our industry as a whole, we just don't ever talk about that. Nobody really right. ever that talks share about of that it. pie. I mean, it's, it's more right. than a wallet. I always think of wallet share as sort of the individual. Okay? Right. Like, Yes. Okay, the bank can't, you know, cards have this much wallet share, cash mm. has that much wallet yes, share. Yes, I like that. Okay. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. And but but I think this is a pie, right? Yeah. It's right. a pie that's been getting bigger over the years, but right. you know what's our it cut? used to be that mobile had a very thin slice of that pie. Right. And its slice is getting bigger and yeah. and the you know brick and mortar plastic card. Uh, pieces getting smaller kind of mm -hmm. reminds me of Christmas at my house when I was at my family house when I was growing up you know yeah. as you got older you got bigger pieces of mom's pie and there you go as yeah. mom got older she took smaller pieces of pie <laughs> yeah 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 and that's what's happening in our industry right now is we're yeah. kind of you know there's certain pie pieces of that pie that are getting smaller and pieces that are getting bigger and I think what's what's scary is most of our audience if they're honest, they're probably focusing on areas where the pieces of pie are getting smaller, meaning yes. brick, and, brick and mortar, mm -hmm. physical location, card present transactions, that piece of the pie is getting measurably smaller. That is a fact. Um, right. And then they're ignoring areas where it's growing, which is card not present, e-commerce, 
mobile payments, meaning not just mobile payments at the terminal, but mobile mm-hmm. payments online right. through, you know, those e-commerce type solutions and, and SaaS solutions, ISVs, that world. So I think it's like, you got to be thinking about that world because that's where the growth is at. Right. And you, of course you want to protect what you've got, but you've got to understand that those, those pieces of pie are going to get smaller over time. Unless, unless you come to those merchants with a full suite of solutions that allows them to do the delivery stuff under their own brand and using your processing and allows them to do the online store with their own, you know, with your processing, right? So I think that's and, the key. And is. they can do that. I mean, there's ways. Yeah, oh my, absolutely. Yeah. They it's go back a, and listen to our podcast episodes. That's we've what had, I was just going to say. You know, yeah. We've had somebody Everything on that does all about. of that. <laughs> so yes. yeah. Yeah, good stuff, Patty. Plenty Thanks so much. For, Thanks, Jim. Yep. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production of greensheet.com and ccsalespro.com. And we hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.